Please open with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. As we go there, I want you to ask yourself this question and throughout our time here in God's word, continue to ask yourself this question. Why do I worship the Lord? What causes, what inspires, what motivates me to get up each Sunday morning to gather together with this congregation and bring and sing praises to God? What inspires your worship? In this chapter here, Exodus 15, we find the most important song in redemptive history. In fact, it is repeated throughout the Old Testament as God's crowning achievement in the lives of his people. This song here and the content and the event of this song, they shape worship of the redeemed for all ages, including our own age. Friends, Israel's entire existence was shaped by the event commemorated by the Song of the Sea recorded for us here in this chapter because Exodus is the greatest redemptive act of God in the Old Testament. And it is the reason, it is the reason, the greatest reason for Israel's praise and worship. And as we will soon see This redemptive act points in the New Testament to yet a greater redemption that becomes now the ultimate reason for our praise. This is the first recorded song of the Hebrew nation. There are other songs recorded in Genesis through Exodus 14, but this here records the first song of the nation. This is national anthem. And it contains two central ideas here in this song. One is about what God has done. It's about the work of God. And the other is about God himself. What does that work reveal about who God is to his nation? Now, you know, oftentimes when you read historical uh, literature about great victories that had happened, um, that, that many heroes have won, we might come across poems that, that celebrate heroes who were like key figures in securing those victories. So there are songs written about major generals. There are songs written about presidents. There are songs written about nations. And what's instructive in this chapter, however, is that although it was Moses who led this nation of Israel across the Red Sea, there is no mention of Moses in this song. This is not a song written by by Israel about a human hero in God's redemptive history. No, Moses, the human hero here, he pens this song and the, all of the contents here is about God. The context is about God. The content is about God. Its sole focus is solely on God. And in fact, the reason for the song is founded in God. It is a theocentric song. Now, what is this that God has done? What is this work that is explained here in this song? Three times, I want you to see three times in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end, 
God's work is described for us this way. Look at verse two of chapter 15. Verse two says, and he has become my salvation. So the theme is salvation. Now look with me at verse 13. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. Salvation, redemption here. And if you look at the end of verse 16, Again, this theme is repeated until the people pass over whom you have purchased. Again, this economic, this this redemption language is used. There's a transaction that takes place here in this chapter. The central act that Moses emphasizes here is God's redemption and people's response. And so as we consider this song, I want to present to you this main thesis, this main idea, and that is this. Friends, we worship the Lord because in love we have been redeemed to be his own. We worship the Lord because he redeemed us to be his own, and that is the only reason why. Uh, We're not going to read the entire song Immediately, we're going to take it stanza by stanza, and we will look at three lessons about our great Redeemer and his redemption that he offers for us that we all experience. Number one, I want us to look at this lesson. Redemption causes God's people to praise him. Redemption, number one, causes God's people to praise him. Number two, we're going to look at the fact that redemption reveals God's uniqueness. And then finally, redemption is rooted in God's special love for his people. I want us to see in verses one through six then that redemption causes God's people to praise him. Let's read one through six. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for... He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. The first thing I want us to see here in these verses, and again we will see in verses 19 through 21, is the act of God's redemption that causes people to praise him. It moves the entire nation. It moves Moses. It moves Miriam, both men and women, to burst out in worship. Notice in verse 1, Notice in verse one, I will sing to the Lord. Why, Moses, why are you singing to the Lord? And he gives us an answer right away, four, four. Now, normally in in Israel's Psalms, 
4 introduces the reason for which God is to be worshipped, for which God is to be praised. And you will see that in countless psalms if you read the book of Psalter. Uh, We find it everywhere. And perhaps one of the most familiar psalm to us will be Psalm 100. Psalm 100. And the psalmist, he opens up his song with a string of commands. He, he tells us what, what he wants the congregation of Israel to do. And so he says, shout joyfully. And then he says, serve the Lord. Come before him. Know the Lord. Know that the Lord is good. Enter his gates. And then he, he tells them, guys, let's join together and give thanks to the Lord. Worship and praise God. He tells them what to do. And then at the very end of the psalm, in verse 5, he offers the reason why. For the Lord is good. For good is the Lord. Why do we sing? Why do we come and praise him? Why do we come before him? Why, why should we know him? Because he is good. God's redeeming acts cause here and everywhere else throughout the scripture his people to praise him. He saves us and we sing. He saves and we sing. This is why we come and gather each Sunday. And if you haven't noticed, we dedicate about 20 to 25 minutes of our service to worship the Lord through singing. Through singing. Why? Why do we do that? Because it is an appropriate response to the truth of redemption. That is why we sing. And Moses structured this psalm in a way that at the beginning and the end of this song, both the beginning and the end, they emphasize the reason. Flip with me to the end of this chapter and look at verse, not, not quite to the end, but to the end of the song. And in verse 19, once again, for... Here's the reason. Don't forget why you worship the Lord. Don't forget why you sing. For the horses of Pharaoh's with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought, them, brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And look at the response again. Verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the uh, timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. And Miriam answered and said, sing to the Lord. Why? For he is highly exalted, the horse and his riders he has hurled into the sea. This redemption song here, the response to God's redemption is both for men and for women. So you almost have this sort of uh, chorus, chorus of men singing. And then it looks like in verses 21, the women uh, repeat. So here we have the beginning of the psalm only giving us. But probably what they did is the women all repeated the entire song once again. Everybody is participating in worship. Beloved, praise and worship They're not designed to initiate something, but they are designed as a response to something. And this is very important for us to understand. It is a response to what God has initiated and accomplished already for us. God 
is the one who acts. He saves, he redeems, and his people, in turn, they respond in praise. And notice something else here. As we will look through and as we will read through this song, this song is not about how Moses and, and the rest of the nation, how they felt about what God had accomplished. This song is solely about what God had accomplished, regardless of how they felt. Obviously, obviously, you can feel the joy. You can feel just the triumph in, in this singing. So obviously, they're very emotional, they're feeling God's redemption here because they were, they were about to be slaughtered and yet the Lord delivered them miraculously through the Red Sea, so full of joy. But only the facts of God's redemption are mentioned here in this song. Only the facts, nothing is said about their feelings. And this is very important for us. Because when we come to scripture and when we read about God's acts, when we read about God's work, regardless of how we feel about them, we need to respond appropriately. And the appropriate response is, Lord, you deserve all praise and you deserve all glory. Now, how did he redeem them? How did he redeem them? He rescued them from their enemies. Look at uh, verse 1. For he, here's the reason, for he is highly exalted. This highly exalted one, or maybe some of your translations uh, say something like triumphed gloriously. And you have this idea that this God, he rose up like a wave. So there's a lot of water language here for the appropriate reason. They're crossing through water. There are waves here. There's drowning going on. There's dry land. And so here, uh, more specifically, this, this uh, phrase here, highly exalted, it's, it almost means like he is risen up like a, a wave and he went into battle and God came out victorious. God came out victorious. Look at verse three. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is a literally man of war. God is a man of war. And isn't that an interesting image of who God is? We oftentimes don't think of God as a warrior, as one who goes to battle. The Lord, the God of the Exodus is a warrior God, Moses says. Now, what does it mean that God is a warrior? Well, I think it, it depends whose side you're on. Right? It means something different for those who are with God on his side as opposed to those who are against God. If you're God's people, then it means one thing. If you're Egyptians, then it means completely different. For God's people, it means verse two, the Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. The fact that the Lord is a warrior means salvation for Israel. He has defeated Egypt and Israel is now his. They are redeemed. They are purchased. They have been delivered. And this is why they burst into this song right there on the shores of the Red Sea after they're saved. If you look at the first word in this song, the introduction, then Moses and the sons of Israel saying, when did they sing this song? You get the sense of just immediately. As soon as they crossed over 
the Pharaoh's chariots are probably still swimming. They could see them. They could see them right there and they're bursting out in praise to the Lord. I want you to look at the previous chapter, chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Before their crossing, Israel, they found themselves trapped between the sea and, and the Egyptian army. And they're despairing. They're complaining. Some have estimated that this group numbers about 2 million. There are about 600 men who left Egypt, not including women, obviously children, men of war. So if you calculate on roughly over 2 million people are sitting there and they are desperate because they know who the Egyptians are. They know how they've been treated for the last 430 years. And what do they do? They cry out, they complain in verse 12, and they said, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Amazing. But Moses here responds in verse 13, and Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. I mean, that's as emphatic as it gets. You will never see them again. Uh, that's enough. Forever. The Lord. Why? Why is Moses so confident? The Lord, verse 14, will fight for you while you keep silent. I mean, verse 14 is, is extremely important for two reasons. It, it describes the Lord as a warrior who delivers his people, but also it shows a proper response while God brings about this deliverance. The Lord fights for you as you keep silent. Israel trapped between the sea and their enemies, they could not deliver themselves. They could do absolutely nothing to affect their salvation. And what are they told? Be still. Rest in the redemption which the Lord will accomplish for you. Look back with me at 15.2. The Lord is my strength and my song. Notice something very, very important here. Moses does not sing about how God gave him strength to overcome the enemy. That, that is not what he is saying. God did not strengthen and empower the Israelites so that they could turn around and so that they can face the enemy and overcome them by going back to Egypt. That is not what he is saying here. God is their strength. God acted solely on their behalf. He does not need any help. What he wanted to do was for his nation to stand back in silence while the warrior went to work. He took the horse and its rider and he hurled them into the sea. That's what God did while the nation was amazed. They stood back in silence. In verses four through six, we read that God, once again, the Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he cast into the sea. 
By his right hand, meaning by his own power, by his own strength, the Lord shattered his enemies. He did not recruit any help, friends. In verse 19, again, as we read, the Lord brought back the waters. He does it all. Again and again, the focus is not on God empowering his people to do something marvelous, to do something amazing, apart, right, or with God. No, God does all of these things apart from us without any contribution. Beloved, isn't this the message of the entire Bible? The Bible is, a, is not a story of how sinful men and women, how they come together in order to save themselves. That's not what they do. No, we are dead. All men and women are dead and helpless sinners. But the story of Scripture is about a mighty warrior who comes to accomplish great salvation for his people. We do not contribute an ounce. What we do is we stand in silence. And when the Lord redeems, when the Lord calls, when the Lord saves, the only response is praise. Praise. The Lord, Moses says, is my song. The Lord, I'm going to sing about him. I will sing to the Lord about the Lord and about his work. God alone is the cause of our redemption and the object of our joy. As I stated earlier, this redemption pointed to a greater redemption. In Titus chapter 2, in verses 11 through 14, Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking forward to the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for every good deed." Friends, as, as Jesus went to battle, as Paul describes here, uh, we did nothing. We did absolutely nothing. We benefit by grace alone. As we sing and, and praise and worship, it is because we know the King of kings. It is because we know the Lord of lords. It is because we belong to him. He is the mighty Savior who delivers us from sin and death. We just read at the opening of our service in Colossians chapter 2.15, what did he do? He has disarmed the rulers. He has disarmed all the authorities, and he triumphs over them. God triumphed over all of them in Christ. He is the God who deserves our highest praise. How do we respond to God's work in our life? Is this the song that your life sings as a response to his miraculous work in your life? Do you sing of your Redeemer? How often? There's a contemporary song that goes something like this. How can we not sing of your praises? How can we stop singing? your grace. It's 
almost like if you understand this, if you get this, if you're in the word, if you understand how you were saved from where you were rescued, you were even in a more desperate situation and position than those Egyptians were. How can we not continue to sing your praise? Redemption is the work only God could perform. It is what God does. But God redeems his people, friends, because of who he is. Because of who he is. His work reveals his character, and that is what I want us to see in verses 7 through 12. Redemption reveals God's uniqueness. Verse 7, and in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will dry up my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among gods, O O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your hand, your right hand. The earth swallowed them. As I already alluded, and you've no doubt observed, this song is all about God. Thirteen times his personal name, Lord, In your Bibles, you will find capital L-O-R-D, all in caps. Thirteen times, this is God's personal name, Yahweh, is used here. In addition to the 38 pronouns that all refer to him. So over 50 times in 21 verses, God is mentioned. Do you think there's a reason why? The song is all about the Lord. God of Israel is a unique God. He is incomparable to anyone else. And redemption should move us to now meditate on our unique God. Now, what does this work or yeah, work of redemption reveal about this God? Well, two things. Two things. One has to do with his name, Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. He is praised for his eternality. God is eternal. God is eternal. It is his special name. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when, when there's this burning bush and, and, and Moses is just there with his flock. He doesn't want anything. He, he long forgotten about Egypt and all those problems. He's just on his own. And for the Lord, it's a perfect time to set in motion this exodus and he calls out from the burning bush to Moses and he says, Moses, Moses, come here, take off your shoes because the ground upon which you stand is holy. And in the course of their conversation, Moses asked the Lord, you know, when I go back to the sons of Israel and they will ask you, ask me who sent you, what should I tell them? And in Exodus 3.14, God introduces himself by this unique personal covenant name. He tells Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
And by this introduction, by this name, God wanted Israel to know that he is the same God who first made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. This is no different God. He is the same God, which Moses here in this song emphasizes for us in, look at in verse two, this is my God. I will extol him, my father's God. My father's God. Same God. God is eternal. He is self-existent. He is immutable, which means that he always has life in himself. He always is. I am. It's the same name that, that Jesus introduced himself in the Gospel of John. I am. The, I am that same God that appeared to Moses. This one, this God goes to battle for you. This is the warrior God. But also he's not only praised for his eternality, he is praised for his wrath. He's praised for his wrath, specifically here in verses seven through 12. Consider the question again in verse three. What does it mean that God is a warrior? Man of war, well, as I said, it depends. If you're on God's side, then you experience, as the Israelites have redemption, you experience salvation. You're saying God is a warrior. That means I'm saved. But if you're against God, it means defeat. It means utter destruction. Here we have a record of how God overthrows his enemies. How God overthrows his enemies, he consumes them like stubble. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, it says that our God is a consuming fire. God is praised for his wrath. And I want you to see two things. I want you to see two observations about his wrath here. Number one is God's wrath is just. God's wrath is just. Think about this. The Exodus story that begins with the Egyptian throwing Hebrew baby boys into the Nile ends with God throwing the Egyptian army into the sea. Look with me at verse 7. We have a not so subtle reminder of Israel's oppression. This word chaff or stubble in some of your translations here at the end of verse seven, you send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff or stubble. It, it no doubt brings to mind the time when Pharaoh made Israelites, quote, gather stubble to use for the straw in Exodus 5.12. Remember that time? When Moses kept coming and kept agitating Pharaoh and Pharaoh gave a command, he no more, no more stubble for their straw. We're done with that. They're going to go and they're going to search for the stubble, search for chaff. And now, repeating the same word in this song is perhaps a way to bring up those memories and to teach that God is just. God doesn't overlook a single thing. The Egyptians got exactly what they deserved. 
When we talk about wrath, friends, we, we must be reminded again and again that God's wrath is, is so much different. God's anger is so much different than ours. Look what one commentator said. He says, the wrath of God is not a vehement, irrational, vindictive, arbitrary, capricious venting of some supernatural spleen. It is the manifestation of the repugnance of a holy God against all who defile, disrupt, and destroy the world that he has made. It is just. Why is God angry? God is angry because we rebel against him. God is angry because here in this context, the entire nation of Egypt led by this Pharaoh rebelled against God. It's not like God just lost his temper like we do. Oftentimes, our kids do something and we just blow the gasket and we go after them. It's not what God does. It's not how God operates. When God punishes sin, he's not venting. Think about what so far what has happened in Exodus or in Genesis and Exodus. God has been patient with Egypt for over 400 years. Patient. And, and he doesn't punish them right after that. No, he sends Moses and he warns them for the next couple of weeks with 10 plagues. Warns one after another, after another, after another. That's what God does. And yet they continue to rebel. They continue to rise up against the Lord. Think about this, even, even at this very moment, the entire nation is destroyed after 10 plagues. You can't even imagine just reading the first 10 chapters of Exodus. You only can, can, can wonder what that place looked like, what Egypt looked like after God was done with it. And look what happens after all that. And after Egypt or after Israelites, they take off. And they, in pride, in pride, Pharaoh, look at this. Pharaoh, he says, verse 9, I will pursue I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, I will gratify myself, I will draw out my soul, I will destroy them. Talk about deceitfulness of sin, right? And it's not just Pharaoh, I mean, it's all of us, I, 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 I. But look at God, look at God in verse eight. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. One preacher said, the supreme confidence of the Egyptian army versus the Lord's sneeze is not a fair fight. God sneezes, friends, and the Egyptians perish. There's irony here in verses eight through 10. God's, that's all he has to do. That's all he has to do. Sneeze. Talk about our God not being compared to anyone else. God blows and the walls made of water that were on both sides as his people were passing by, as soon as they passed by, they collapsed and everybody there, the entire Egyptian army, Perishes, perishes. Friends, God's wrath is, is justice realized because he cannot do otherwise. 
You know, how often do we cry out for justice when someone hurts us or, I don't know, when we feel discomfort, when there's difficulty in our life because of someone or because of something, right? We want swift, we want immediate action. We want just God or somebody to intercede. We want the state to intercede or, or, or our parents or somebody act out. Why? Because there's injustice done. How much more with God as he sees the sin and wickedness upon the earth? God's wrath is just. But also, second thing I want us to see here that God's wrath is necessary. God's wrath is necessary because without destroying the Egyptians, the Hebrews remain slaves. Without destroying the Egyptians, the Hebrews remain slaves. So if there is no judgment, there is no salvation. And friends, God, think through this, God takes it upon himself to accomplish both judgment and salvation. And how much more remarkable is the display of his wrath in the New Testament at the cross where both judgment and salvation take place. The Bible is clear that we need someone who can deliver us from sin, otherwise we remain his enemies. In Ephesians chapter two, verse three, Paul says that we were children of wrath, we were objects of his wrath, of God's wrath, even as the rest, prior to us being saved. But we were, at one point, we were just like the rest. God wars against sin, he wars against every sinner. John 3.36 says, he who does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. So the only way that, that God does not consume us is because this same God delivers us. He acts on our behalf. He sends his Son, Jesus, who is then the deliverer. He is the redeemer. And so all over scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, God teaches that God's judgment for our rebellion against him has been executed on Jesus at the cross. Isaiah 53, verse six, we all know this verse. All of us have, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God pours out his wrath on Jesus so that all who believe in Christ could be delivered from this warrior so that he no longer fights against us, but he now fights for us. I mean, isn't this good news? If this does not make you praise and worship the Lord, there is no greater news. We fail to understand the severity. We fail to understand the danger that we are in apart from Christ, we are delivered because he was destroyed. That's why passage like Romans 3, 26 says, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and the justifier. What this means is that because of Christ's death, God can be just judge of the universe, but also he can forgive us and welcome us as his own children, just and the justifier. The depiction here of 
God as a warrior who, who delivers his people, who destroys his enemies. It sort of is brought to its crescendo here in verse 11, where Moses and the entire nation cries out, who is like you among the gods? Oh Lord, who? Who can compare? There is no one like you. There is no one like you. And Finally here, this is the entire goal. This is the entire purpose of the 10 plagues. Do you remember why God caused the 10 plagues? Obviously to to deliver his people, but there was one central theme. There was one central idea from across the entire book of Exodus here, and that is this. Turn with me to Exodus 6, and we'll just follow through. Exodus 6, or rather 7. 17, Exodus 7, 17. This is when the waters turn to blood. In verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. By what? By this miracle. You shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 10 of chapter 8. That you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Verse 22 at the end. In order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. Chapter 9, verse 14, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Verse 29 of chapter 9, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. 10, 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 9, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land. And finally, In chapter 14, in chapter 14, and the Egyptians, verse 4, will know that I am the Lord. And verse 18, then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. You get the point? God wants us to know. God wanted them. God wanted everyone to know who he is. He is not just like another deity domesticated by another nation that does not go beyond its national boundaries. No, this God goes into another nation, like Deuteronomy 4 says, and he takes a people for his own possession, a people who supposedly belong to another God. He takes them, he rescues them, and there is no one else No one who can stand against this God. Who is like you among the gods, O God? None of Egypt's God had anything like the power of Israel's sovereign God. And his work of redemption reveals his uniqueness. He alone is majestic in holiness. Verse 11, majestic in holiness. He's unique, he's, he's set apart, he's absolutely glorious. Friends, our God is in the league of his own. There, there, there are no other gods or goddesses or there are no kings or, or queens. There are no presidents, there are no prime ministers. There's nobody else, no one like our God possessing the kind of strength and power and glory that our God possesses. His work is alone a work of wonder, which is worthy of praise. So we must pause and we must reflect and we must ask, is this our view of God? How how big is your God, friend? I mean, do do you wake up daily and, and you remind yourself about 
the God who's on your side? Do we believe, you know, deep down in our hearts that we belong to someone who is most holy, most glorious, most powerful, that he's on our side because of Jesus Christ? What is your view of God? When we view him as Moses and the nation did right after their deliverance, we really could go through anything because it has absolutely nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the one who leads us because God is with us. And, and this is a reminder that we need constantly, daily, almost moment by moment. Because check this out. This is a glorious song, isn't it? Do you think the people believe what they believed, what, they, what they're singing here in Exodus 15? Absolutely they believe. They're dancing. They're rejoicing. They're full of gratitude. But it doesn't last long, friends. It doesn't last long. Three days later, in the same chapter, it is recorded that the same group of people, they're in the wilderness. And they couldn't get any water. They just passed through the Red Sea on dry land. And here they are suffering because they're thirsty. And what do they do? They begin to grumble. They cry out against Moses and the Lord. I mean, we're the same way, right? We're forgetful creatures. And so we need to be reminded again and again. We need to renew our minds by going back to the word to be reminded who's on our side, whom we serve. God is unlike anyone else. So as we come to our final section, another question must be asked, why did God choose to redeem his people? Why did God choose to deal with Egyptians one way and with Israel another way? What made one group special and distinct from everyone else? Fair question to ask. Let's read verses 13 through 18. And here's where we get our third point. Redemption is rooted in God's special love for his people. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling gripped them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. God, friends, went to battle for them because of his covenant relationship with them. Loving kindness, verse 13, in your loving kindness. This, this word hesed, right? This word uh, refers to his special, his covenant keeping love. And I want you to see two things here about um, this section here, in this section. In love, God redeems them. It is his love that prompted God to act on behalf of his 
people. Go back with me to Exodus chapter two. Exodus chapter two, and I wanna read verse 23 through the end. Exodus chapter two, verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage and they cried out and their cry for help and, and, they, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Why did God take notice of Israel? Because they were crying louder than the rest of the people? No. No, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were not his chosen people because they were the holiest people. They were not saved even because they were Jews. If we read the rest of the Old Testament, we will find out that these many Jews who were brought through the waters, they actually ended up dying because of God's wrath when they rebel against God. These people had no claim on God's love much the same way we do not have claim on God's love here in this room. We can't earn God's love. We are loved by God only because God chooses to love us. We are redeemed through the Son because long ago, quote, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself in Ephesians 1. Redemption is rooted in God's special love for his people. But he not only redeems them, he led them in love. God leads them in love. Go back to 15 and verse 13. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. God is here described no longer as a warrior, but as a shepherd. He's their redeemer, and by his power and by his might, he leads them first to Mount Sinai, where he meets with them, and, and in chapters 19 and 20 and beyond, he gives them the law and then ultimately and eventually he leads them to Mount Zion, to the promised land. And notice the tenses here in verses, the verb tenses in verses 13 through 18. They're rendered in past tense. Um, they're not in the promised land yet. They just crossed to begin the conquest. But yet here, they, Moses speaks prophetically about the time when they will get to their desired destination. And he has such confidence that he almost puts everything in past tense. It's done deal. If this God went to battle for us, he's going to bring us in to his holy habitation. It's gonna get done. Why? Because of the greatness of our God. God can talk about things that will happen as if they had already happened. It's God, not us. He loves his people and therefore he will lead them to their home. And on the way there, they will encounter all kinds of nations, Edom, Moab, Philistia, Canaanites, who hear about this great God and they can do nothing about it. That's the whole point of, of the last portion of this song. They can do nothing about it. 
And just as the first part of the song, it describes the Egyptians as having sunk into the sea like a stone. So now it is said that these nations here in verse 16, they are motionless as stone. God is unique. You can't go up against him. What is the goal of the Exodus? What is the goal? Why did God lead him out? Well, in verse 17 and 18, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place of your dwelling. The goal of God's people living, the goal is God's people living in his presence, friends. And God reigning among them forever and ever. Verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And in his love, he is committed to fulfilling these promises. As we wrap up, the, the great exodus points yet to a greater exodus that we've already seen. Friends, Jesus had purchased us with his own blood to be his bride, and, and today God is leading us home. He purchased us so that we may be with him forever in his presence. As they were marching, so are we. We are marching home. And, and there's this, this tension here, right, in this songs. They're marching as if they're there already, but they're not there yet. And, and this is the reality that we all experience as believers. Our, our salvation is secured. God has overcome. We are his. Christ is in us. We are in Christ, and yet we are not with Christ yet in his presence. We look forward to that time. Look forward. But yet we sing the song as if it's already final. God will, friends, restore us fully and finally into his presence. This is what the gospel is all about. And so, friend, if you're here this morning or maybe you're watching or maybe you're listening and, and you want to know why you should believe in this great God, why you should believe in Jesus, there's really only one thing to say, that Jesus redeems sinners because he loves them. And he offers them peace with God, free of charge. You stand back and watch in silence. It's all by grace through faith. And so the invitation is to come and to experience his forgiveness and to begin to sing the song of deliverance with God's people from all ages past. Because get this, apart from Christ, you can do nothing to protect yourself from this warrior. Nothing. We were just singing earlier, I have a shelter in the storm. Remember that song? I have a shelter in the storm. What do we have a shelter from? What storm are we talking about? Yeah, many trials and tribulations here. Absolutely. But ultimate storm is yet to come. And those who are not hidden, those who are not sheltered by Christ, they're done. There is no shelter that can withstand his fury. No shelter but Christ. And for those of us who already have faith in Christ, let me ask you this and ask yourself, do I long to be with God? Do I long? Because that's the goal, right? The goal of redemption is for us to be back in his presence. The goal of Exodus is for us to dwell with God and for God to dwell with us and for Christ to reign forever and ever. Do I long? And I must admit that 
I don't always long, right? I don't actively seek to, to be near the Lord. And I pray that as, as we see in this song, that, that the song will awaken our hearts to long for God. May it awaken us to see God in scripture, to speak with him in prayer, to, to communion, to have communion with him, to long for the day when we will dwell with him physically. And also to encourage us to, to speak to others about this redemption which is available for all who place their faith in Christ. Friends, we worship the Lord because in love we have been redeemed to be his own. Turn with me to Revelation, Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15, and we'll end here with these verses beginning with verse two. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb. This reference to the song of Moses most likely is a reference to Exodus 15. And the song of the Lamb is likely a reference to Revelation chapter nine. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal. You were slain and purchased for God with your own blood, man from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. This is how it all ends. God wants us to remember what happened to them so that we can express our gratitude and forever worship him because of the greater exodus that took place for us. Father, we thank you. May our hearts be inspired and be motivated to give you all the praise. And not just here on Sunday, but every single day. Lord, when we are down when we are anxious, when we are fearful, help us to look to you. Help us to look to you and remind ourselves that you are for us. And those who have a good reason to fear, may they also look to you and may they come in repentance and faith to know that only Christ can be their refuge and shelter from the storm. We thank you. May we sing of our Redeemer forevermore. Amen.